Hi, everyone. Welcome to Osteobytes. Thank you so much for joining us on this Thursday. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I am mom to Osteo Angel Dillon and Director of Scientific Programs at MIB Agents. And today on Osteobytes, we are talking with Dr. Fiona Freeman about innovative engineering techniques her lab employs to create 3D models of osteosarcoma and results of some of the drug screening that they've used these models for. Thanks so much, Dr. Freeman, for joining us today. We are thrilled to have you um, and super happy to have Walker back as a panelist on Osteobite. We missed you, Walker. Walker is an osteo warrior and vice president of our junior advisory board. Um, so a little bit more about our guest today. Uh, Dr. Fanna Freeman is an assistant professor in the School of Mechanical and Materials Engineering at University College Dublin. A graduate of biomedical engineering, she was awarded a PhD from the University of Galway in 2016, focusing on developing new strategies for bone tissue regeneration. And since then, Dr. Freeman has won two prestigious postdoctoral fellowships, the Government of Ireland IRC Postdoctoral Research Fellowship and the Marie Curie Global Fellowship. And these fellowships provided her with opportunities to work as a postdoctoral researcher in renowned labs at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Johns Hopkins University, and Trinity College Dublin. And in September of 2022, Dr. Freeman was appointed as the first Ad Astra Fellow in the School of Mechanical and Materials Engineering, and her current research focuses on using innovative engineering techniques to gain a better understanding of and develop novel therapeutics for treating osteosarcoma. And as part of her research, Dr. Freeman identified a novel microRNA, MIR-29B, as a potential therapeutic target for osteosarcoma. And Dr. Freeman conducted this work in collaboration with researchers at MIT and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And in the coming years, he's dedicated to building upon this research and advancing this technology toward clinical application. Welcome, Dr. Freeman, and welcome everyone joining us today. We are so excited to hear about your work today, Dr. Freeman. I think your paper was published uh, back in March earlier this year. And so we've been eagerly anticipating um, this episode. So um, everyone, please feel free to add any questions you have for Dr. Freeman um, to the Q&A. And I just have a couple of announcements and reminders before we get started for um, bereaved parents of osteosarcoma angels um, and also for siblings. We have a new series of Healing Hearts uh, program that just started this month. Um, Healing Hearts for bereaved parent sessions are on Wednesdays and Sundays, and they run through the end of the year um, and also include a special holiday edition, like just dealing with that rough time of year um, in December. And we also have different sessions for young adult siblings and separate sessions for teen siblings. So I'll put some more info in the chat about how to sign up for those. Um, and it is September, which means we are in the middle of Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And um, with a $25 donation, you will receive a beautiful big gold bow that you can use to adorn your mailbox or your front door or any other special place that you have. Um, I can attest that they're climate change resistant. I have my one from last year that survived all the storms that we have. Um, so I'll put some more information in the chat about how you can get those. And um, you can see Walker is in the spirit with the yellow bow hanging um, from his ceiling there. Um, and we were kind of just joking about, you know, it's kind of like the mistletoe application of the um, Shelfed Cancer Awareness bow, which I kind of like. Um, and so all the funds raised from our bows will support programs, education, and research for the osteosarcoma community. Um, so thanks for um, participating in that. I will put some more info in the chat. Walker, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? 
Hi, my name is Walker. Uh, as Christina already said, I'm the Junior Advisory Board Vice President this year and also an Osteo Warrior. I was diagnosed in 2018 and then uh, finished treatment around 2019 with one lung recurrence in 2020. I've been good since then. I'm really excited to hear what Dr. Freeman has to say today so you can take it from there. Uh, so first of all, uh, thank you guys so much for giving me the opportunity to talk to everyone today. I'm really excited. Um, and so I, I kind of just wanted to start off my talk by giving a um, brief background about where I'm from and, and I suppose my osteocircular research journey. So I hail from the small but very mighty country that is Ireland. Uh, I realize it might be hard to see, so here it is in all its glory. Um, Ireland is home to one of the most fast-paced sports known to man, which is called hurling, um, which is somewhat like a combination of lacrosse and field hockey. Uh, for all the rugby fans out there, uh, it is worth noting that we are currently ranked near, uh, number one in the world in rugby, with 13 of the Irish uh, rugby team that's currently in the World Cup being from alumni from my university. Our country is also renowned for its rugged landscapes, as well as its vibrant music speed. But specifically, I come from our capital, which is known as Dublin, where, I work, where I've worked at two of the four universities located in the city. I began my osteosarcoma research journey at Trinity College Dublin, which is famous for its law library, a place that might look familiar to some as it served as inspiration for the Jedi archives in the Jedi Temple. Afterwards, I travelled across the pond to Boston, where I spent two years working at MIT and Brigham Women's Hospital, before uh, taking up my current role in University College Dublin. UCD is the largest university in the country, and it's recognised as Ireland's most globally engaged university. It boasts enrollments over 38,000 students from 152 countries, with more than 5,000 students based at locations outside of Ireland. So why are we all here? Well, as we're probably all aware, um, osteosarcoma is a highly aggressive bone cancer, which largely affects children and adolescents and young adults. The current gold standard treatment for osteosarcoma patients is tumor resection and systemic chemotherapy, yet the five-year survival rate for some of the resistant forms of osteosarcoma can be still below 20%, with no major change in treatment since the introduction of chemotherapy in the late 1970s. As metastatic disease is the most critical clinical factor which influences malignant progression and mortality in osteosarcoma, most of the research today is focused on tumor elimination and prevention of metastases, with little attention to bone repair or bone salvation. And so as my previous background alludes to, I, I came from a bone tissue regeneration strategy. So I wanted to find out whether or not we could regenerate the damaged bone caused by the extent of the surgical intervention and um, that could lead to amputation. So how can we regenerate the bone without causing tumor recurrence? Well, as an engineer, um, bone is a fascinating tissue. Despite its inert appearance, it is a highly dynamic organ which is continuously being repaired and regenerated by bone cells to accommodate for everyday activity. This is primarily due to a continuous communication between two types of cells within the bone. Osteoblasts, which lay down new bone tissue, and osteoclasts, which, similar to Pac-Man, removes the damaged bone and creates space for the osteoblasts to lay down new bone. However, diseases like osteosarcoma manipulate this vital interaction. They instruct the osteoclasts to erode away more bone and suppress the osteoblasts, preventing them from laying down new bone. This, in turn, provides more space for the tumor to grow. So what if we could develop a therapy that could restore this vital interaction? What if we could deliver a treatment that would activate the osteoblast to start laying down new bone? 
Could we repair the damaged bone caused by exercising the tumor and salvage the tissue? Well, one of the most widely used therapeutics that is used clinically to, to repair large bone defects is the delivery of osteogenic growth. However, their use following osteosarcoma tumor resection is a controversial topic, with some in vitro studies showing that the growth factors can actually promote cancer rates and others showing that it has no effect on tumor growth whatsoever. Given these divergent results, there's been no real further research into the direct effect osteogenic growth factor delivery has on both tumor growth and bone regeneration following tumor resection. So we decided to take a closer look. To do this, we developed a 3D printed micro well system, which basically allowed us to create 401 tumor spheroids or mini tumors within a one well of a six well device. These mini tumors contained a mixture of osteosarcoma cells and mesenchymal stem cells, which can differentiate into osteoblasts giving the right cues. By varying the ratio of osteosarcoma cells to mesenchymal stem cells within the mini tumor, we were able to develop an early and late stage tumor spheroid. This was evident by the significant increase in tumor growth and the increase in two of the prognostic markers genetically for osteosarcoma, beta catenin and NNP9. And so you can see just how small these little mini tumors can um, be. To validate our model, we treated our mini tumors with the chemotherapeutic doxorubicin. Our results demonstrated, similar to what was observed clinically, that doxorubicin treatment had a clear cytotoxic effect on our mini tumors. This was evident by the significant decrease in our prognostic markers and NMP2 and beta catenin as well as the significant increase in positive red dead stained cells within our mini tumors. Furthermore, it is notable that there was a significant increase in the apoptotic genes within our mini tumors or the pro-dep genes following the treatment with the doxorubicin in our early stage group. However, when we examine our late stage group, we can see that this therapeutic effect is slightly diminished with a less pronounced impact on both the prognostic genes and the apoptotic genes. This indicates that we are also modeling what is also seen clearly, where in some cases the tumor is becoming chemo-resistant. Now that we've validated our model's ability to make early and late-stage osteosarcoma, our next objective was to try and model or understand that divergent relationship between tumor elimination and bone regeneration. So we treated our mini-tumors with two well-established osteogenic growth factors, platelet-derived growth factor and bone morphogenetic protein. Additionally, we administered these treatments with and without the chemotherapeutic agent, doxorubicin, as in clinical practice, the goal would be to deliver this therapeutic alongside the clinical gold standard therapy so that we could regenerate the damaged bone without causing tumor recurrence. Uh, so in order to understand the effect... Sorry, just a clarifying question on the early stage versus the late stage osteo. Sorry, mm -hmm. that. so is it just the... Um, does that include... Uh, does is a late stage basically a metastatic sample or is it like a pre-treated sample or? So again, it's just what we kind of call early and late stage, kind of uh, more cancer cells to healthy cells versus less cancer cells to, to um, healthy cells. So we're kind of saying it's as if the cancer has grown significantly more than what's left of the healthy cells versus, you know, and what where there's only a few cancer cells with starting its progression. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so they haven't necessarily be, been treated. Have they? 
have it. So this okay. is in the formation of the mini tumors. In order to make the mini tumors, we add in different ratios of cells. So you can kind of see it here with this graph. Uh, in the early stage, we have three times the amount of mesenchymal stromal cells to osteosarcoma cells. And so that that's how the tumor is made. It's a three is to one ratio. And so any, and then the other way around to the late stage where we have three times as many cancer cells within the mini tumor compared to the mesenchymal stem cells. Got it. All right. Thank you. Yeah. So in order to understand what effect these growth factors were having on each of our individual cell types, before we made our mini tumors, we labeled each cell type and then created the mini tumors. And so the blue line is the original ratio of each cell type within the mini tumor. So here we can see it's, it's at three. So originally we put in three times as many mesenchymal stem cells to osteosarcoma cells. So anything below the blue line indicates an increase in osteosarcoma cell growth and anything above the blue line would indicate an increase in the number of mesenchymal stem cells or a decrease in the number of osteosarcoma cells. So what we can see here is when we treated our mini tumors with the osteogenic growth factors that there was a promotion of mesenchymal stem cell growth, but not of osteosarcoma cell growth um, as when we uh, delivered the osteogenic growth factors. Um, but what was interesting was that when we added chemotherapy, that this this inflammatory um, effect was completely diminished. So the the effect that these osteogenic growth factors had on the the healthy cells did not work in the presence of chemotherapeutic. And and this was also seen genetically. So if we look at just the group that was had the BP two delivered, we can see this nice upregulation in the pro osteoblast genes. So here with all the yellow boxes means they've been upregulated. And we can see that in the same group with the same treatment, but when we also add in the doxorubicin, the stimulatory effect is completely nullified. So to validate this steroid model even further, we wanted to assess the clinical relevance using an orthotopic monomenostonic model. In this context, we, were fo we focused exclusively on investigating the effect of BMP2 as it demonstrates the most potent osteoblastic um, effect within our 3D steroid model. So we created an orthotopic model by basically drilling a hole in the tibial plateau of our mice and injecting in the osteosarcoma cells right into the bone. We allowed the cancer to form for two weeks as we deemed optimal, and just before we did any sort of treatment options, we performed CT analysis on the, uh, the bones. We then um, locally injected in our BMP2 using a delivery vehicle, which I'll explain further in the next slide. And then we had one group which also received systemic doxorubicin um, over three weeks, and we, and we kept these animals out till survival and did CT analysis two weeks post-treatment as well. So to deliver the BMP2, we created a novel cyanuronic acid-based delivery system. Um, and so this particular delivery system was able to cross-link in situ. Um, and it also allowed for the um, low-level and sustained release of the growth factor to the, the site over time. So if we first look at overall survivability of our mice, what was interesting was that the addition of BMP2 to the tumor didn't actually increase bone growth or tumor growth whatsoever. So there was no significant increase or decrease in survivability by adding in that osteogenic growth factor. But what was interesting is the amount of bone volume significantly decreased when we compared our two BMP2 groups and, and 
you can really see it when you look at the um, ET reconstruction images. So both of these groups contained this exact same amount of growth factor and the exact same um, treatment option. But the one on the left didn't get systemic chemotherapy and the one on the right got systemic chemotherapy. And so the one on the left, you can see it's promoting bone formation within that hydrogel. Whereas the second you add in that systemic chemotherapy, you're getting this inhibition or the, of, of this stinnish-worry effect. And so just some take-home messages from that. So um, we developed an early and late-stage model, spheroid model of osteosarcoma. We were able to demonstrate that osteogenic supplements have a stimulatory effect on the surrounding healthy stem cells. However, they have no real effect on the osteosarcoma cells and their growth. However, that when you treated it with chemotherapeutics, the stimulatory effect will completely diminish. We also developed a novel injectable delivery system in which we can use to deliver um, any sort of therapeutics as it crosses in situ. And we were able to validate our 3D sphere model and its results against um, an animal model to show its validity. However, although we were able to show that osteogenic growth factors like the 2 don't actually promote tumor growth, we were also demonstrated that when it is combined with chemotherapy, it was unable to it will be unable to repair any of the damaged bone tissue. So, how are we going to regenerate this damaged bone without causing tumor occurrence, but also while the patient is undergoing chemotherapy? And so with two modified RNA-based COVID-19 vaccines currently being used worldwide. I wondered if gene therapy could be a novel treatment option. And um, specifically, microRNAs have been identified as gene expression master regulators, and they've been shown to regulate biological systems such as deadness, immunity, and have been shown to play a crucial role in the initiation and progression of many types of cancers. After doing a thorough lib review, I, I signaled out MIOR29B, as I thought it might have this triple therapeutic role for osteosarcoma. Specifically, it's been shown to be silenced or down-regulated in many different types of cancer, never in osteosarcoma. And they've also shown in these cancer types that restoration of this gene has been shown to elicit a tumor-suppressive uh, property. But it has also been shown in healthy cells to promote osteoblastic brandization or promote that bone-forming signaling. And the final thing is it has also been shown to inhibit angiogenesis. So from a bow regeneration standpoint, you want to have some angiogenesis because it helps to repair your damaged bone. But because we're talking about cancer and because osteosarcoma metastasized to the lungs, you don't want an influx of vascularization. So you want to be able to repair the damaged bone without also causing an influx of vascularization, which may cause metastases. So it had this potential triple therapeutic role. However, there were several challenges that limited microRNA delivery as potential treatment options for osteosarcoma. These challenges included poor penetration of the microRNA into the tumor tissue, fast degradation time of the unmodified microRNAs, and activation of the innate immune system leading to unexpected toxicities and undesirable side effects. One way to overcome these limitations is through localized delivery of the microRNA using a nanoparticle delivery vehicle. Specifically, the lab that I was working in, in MIT, had been working with this polymer-based PBAE nanoparticle, which had been shown to have low toxicity and high biocompatibility due to their backbone as repeating ester groups that are biodegradable and through hydrolysis in the cell cytoplasm. 
They also hold their DNA within the polymer matrix, allowing for higher encapsulation and low so the first thing we wanted to see is whether or not we were going to have this triple combinant therapeutic role in not only the cancer cells, but also the healthy surrounding uh, stem cells. So we developed our MIOR 2019 nanoverticals, and then we transfected um, either osteosarcoma cells or again, our human mesenchymal stem cells. And so here we were looking for in the healthy mesenchymal stem cells, that pro-osteoblast anti-angiogenic role. And then in the tumor, in the osteosarcoma cells, we're looking for that tumor suppressive role. So, so the first thing we look at is the healthy mesenchymal stem cells. And so here you can see the, the cells stay in lower left and, and we, we labeled the nanoparticles in pink. And so the first thing we're able to see is that the nanoparticles are able to get into the center of the cell and deliver the, the DNA or the microRNA. And so we also can see then as well that there was no toxic effect of these microparticles to, uh, to the stem cells as the DNA content didn't go down due to the transfection. And then what was interesting is we started to get this uh, pro-osteoblast anti-angiogenic role. So here uh, the scramble is, is basically the nanoparticles with not the gene inside, and, and then we have the nanoparticles with the gene. And so we can see that there's an upregulation in alkaline phosphatase activity which is the marker for osteoblasts. And then we also get um, a significant deregulation of VEGF, which is the marker for angiogenesis. And when we look at our cancer cells, again, we can see that the nanoparticles were able to get into the center of the cells and, and deliver their carbo. But what was interesting now, we can start to see that toxic effect that the not, that the, specifically that the gene is having as we are getting the significant reduction in DNA content. Um, and no real effect on any sort of other markers. And so we kind of wanted to look at this a bit further. And so using SPO cytometry and then using chemotherapy as our control, we looked at cells undergoing apoptosis or undergoing death. And so if you haven't looked at some um, flow plots before, basically what we're looking at is in these, this quadrant four is all the cells that are currently alive in, in our population. And so what we can see is that when we deliver chemotherapy, very few of the cells are survived, about 2%. And whereas in our scramble and, and microRNA, and, and just reiterate, this is in the healthy mesothelial stromal cells, we can see that around 95% of the cells are still survived following transfection. So there was no cytotoxic effect. And then quadrant one and quadrant two is cells that are about to undergo apoptosis or have undergone apoptosis. And we can see here, this is where a majority of the cells are in a chemotherapy group because they're undergoing apoptosis, whereas in, uh, and we have no real cells undergoing apoptosis, only about 2% in our scramble and microRNA What's interesting is when we now look at our osteosarcoma cells, again, very few live cells in our chemotherapy group. But now when we compare our scramble group to our microRNA group, we can see the effect that this specific gene is happening because we went from having 90% of our cells alive to now 85%. And when we start to look at our um, cells undergoing apoptosis, we can see that we've got a significantly more cells in our microRNA groups undergoing apoptosis than we did in our scramble group. So there's this selective apoptosis effect in cancer cells that isn't happening in the healthy cell. So next, we want to see what effect this is going to have in 3D and, and also really to, to find out that our nanoparticles would be able to transfect into a 3D tumor environment. So not just on a, a 2D transfection level. 
And so we we created our nanoparticles, and again we took our our midi tumor spheroid model of osteosarcoma, which has the three times the amount of stem cells to osteosarcoma cells. And then we also uh, treated them with our microRNA, but also now uh, in combination with our chemotherapy, because we wanted to see if it was going to be able to have that pro osteoblast effect even in the presence of, of chemotherapy, which we we had previously shown that BMP two could not. And so first looking at tumor suppression, what was interesting in our, these are the prognostic genes for osteosarcoma was that our microRNA delivery had a tumor suppressive role similar to that of, of doxorubicin. So this would be just chemotherapy on its own, and this is the gene on its own. And so we can see a significant reduction in those, those pro-tumor um, um, markers. And um, so we're, we're having that tumor suppressive role and even in, similar to the phenotypes of, of glotzeribsin. And the way the gene works is it, it is uh, meant to shut all TGF data signaling. And we can see that that's exactly what's happening within our model. And then if we look at our um, VEGF expression and release, again, we can see that anti-angiogenic response that the microRNA is having. And then slightly, and what was probably the most interesting is when we look at those pro-osteoblast or um, pro-bone markers, we can see that the microRNA-29B is promoting osteoblast differentiation, even in the presence of doxorubicin. So it is able to promote bone regeneration, even while the patient is undergoing chemotherapy. And you can really see it in um, here, so this bright red stain would be staining for calcium, and you can see that we've got these nice calcium nodules in our microRNA groups, and um, which you just don't have in our control groups. So in a, in a first step towards clinical translation, we wanted to see what effect this therapy was having. We went back to our osteosarcoma model, and so we induced the tumor, we allowed it to form for two weeks, and we did our CT analysis beforehand. We delivered our microRNA down using the same delivery vehicle we had for BMP2, so same hydrogel that cross is in situ, but this time it's going to release our nanoparticles, which contain your microRNA 20 B. Again, we also combined it with systemic doxorubicin, and we performed our CT analysis two weeks post-treatment and checked these animals' ideal survival. So the first thing we wanted to look at was, first of all, whether the nanoparticles did locally deliver to the tumor site. And so what we can see here is when we fluorescently labeled the PDE nanoparticles within our hydrogel delivery system, we were able to uh, demonstrate that there was a focused delivery of the nanoparticles to the primary tumor site as evidenced by this IVIS imaging, which allows us to um, fluorescently image where the nanoparticles are at times. What was also interesting was that there was no downstream signal for of any of the healthy organs. So the nanoparticles weren't going to any other organ. They were localized around the tumor site. And we can also see from the nanoparticle release profile that it, the nanoparticles are basically being released from the high shell over the 15 days. So what effect is that having on tumor growth? And so here we can see um, the control group, so non-treated in black and, and, and chemotherapy systemically delivered in, in orange, and we can see that there's a continuous increase in tumor growth. And however, the second we, we deliver our hydrogel with our um, microA29B, we start to see that suppression in tumor growth 
and in those two treated groups, either combined with doxorubicin or even just alone with no doxorubicin. Um, what effect is this having on survivability then? Um, so again, you can see our two control groups and there was no significant difference. The animals, you know, pretty much died after, you know, three weeks. Um, however, when we delivered our micro-A29B, we got a significant increase in survivability of over two weeks in our micro-A when it's combined with doxorubicin. So this gene is suppressing tumor growth locally. And um, so that was quite interesting. Um, but if we recall from the beginning of my talk, osteosarcoma manipulates those osteoclasts to erode away the bone as the tumor grows. And so you can really see that in evidence in our CT uh, 3D reconstructions of our two control groups, right? You see a significant amount of bone has been eroded away. And you can see a significant loss in bone volume from pre-treatment to two weeks post-treatment. However, when we now deliver our micro-A29B, we can see a nice restoration of our bone, significantly um, less bone erosion, and even um, this is even happening alongside chemotherapeutic. It's slightly more diminished, but still working, um, which is great. Which this was not the case when we delivered our and um, so just some take home messages from this study and um, we developed novel nanoparticles, which were able to deliver micro A 29 b to the mesoclonal stem cells and the osteosarcoma cells in both 2D and 3D culture. And the MIOR29B delivery seems to induce intrinsic apoptosis in the osteosarcoma cells. Um, and then when we combine uh, compare MIOR29B delivery to the current gold standard treatment, which is chemotherapy, we saw a significant decrease in tumor burden, a significant increase in mouse survivability, and a significant decrease in osteolysis, where the amount of bone being eroded away due to the tumor, thereby normalizing that um, that communication that happens between the osteoblast and the osteoclast. However, although we increased the survivability by over a week, we did not cure any of the animals. And like in human patients, all of our animals succumbed to the disease due to the presence of lona. So this further emphasized the strong clinical need for new therapies to try and uh, inhibit metastases. So as the metastasis is the most critical clinical factor, we, we then next sought to try and understand this process further. And um, so there are three critical stages of the metastatic cascade for osteosarcoma. There's the formation of the, the tumor within the bone mineral matrix. There's the invasion of the cancer cell within the vascular network. And then there's the exervation or exit of the cancer cell from the vascular network. And then it's engraftment within the lung tissue. So we can see that metastasis is a really complex and dynamic process that's influenced by the multiple local tissue microenvironments, and they're all locally linked and coordinated, which makes it really hard to isolate how these two tissues communicate and, and what, what, how the parameter contributes to metastases using in vivo models. There's a little emerging evidence which suggests the existence of the pre-metastatic niche for osteosarcoma, in which there are growth factors that are being released from the osteosarcoma tumor that are being sent to the lung tissue to prime the lung tissue for cancer cell engraftment. So how can we analyze the crosstalk that might be occurring between these two tissues to understand why osteosarcoma predominantly metastasizes to the lungs? 
And so this kind of brought us to the organon and chip field. And um, so an organon and chip device is, is a three-dimensional microfluidic device that recompatriates the complex structure and functions of living human organs. These devices usually consist of a, of a flat, flexible elastic material, roughly the size of about a USB memory stick. Um, Within the device, there's intricate hollow microfluidic channels that are aligned with human cells, 3D tissues, and, and then blood vessels. And these living three-dimensional replicas of human organs can offer real insights into the inner workings and effects that drugs can have on them, all without involving human clinical trials or not. This emerging field reaches a significant milestone in December 2022, with the U.S. Congress approving the FDA Modernization Act 2.0, which permits the utilization of organon-a-chip data for drug discovery in place of animal models. So this clearly underscores the immense potential that organon-a-chip fields can have for trying to test potential new therapeutics for rare diseases like osteosarcoma. And so recently, my lab has just been awarded a, a European Research Council grant and to develop a lung metastasis on a chip model for osteosarcoma as a biomimetic testing platform for drug discovery and therapeutic invention. And so our project, MediChip, will allow us hopefully to profile that intricate communication between the osteosarcoma tumor and the lung tissue in a way that we could not achieve using traditional animal models. By through functional coupling of the two devices, so by taking the uh, by, by analyzing commutative cues that are being released from the osteosarcoma on the chip, and then taking these cues and loading them into the lung chip, we'll be able to analyze their effect in promoting osteosarcoma cell engraftment within the lung, and maybe identify cues that or key players that that cause this process and maybe a therapeutic to stop them. And so, in a, in a first step towards and um, this project, we've, we've already developed a, a prototype of our device and, and we've loaded it with our mini tumors for osteosarcoma. And then we also loaded it with vascular cells so that we were able to create this vascular network. So the vascular stains, our cells are stained here in green and, and the white circles are mini tumors. And even with this um, prototype device, we can gain valuable insights into the role of the vascular network plays into these progressions within our device. So we can see that the vascular cells at the start kind of are in and around the tumor cell. But over five days, they seem to completely repel the mini tumors in our early stage osteosarcoma spheroids. But when we look at our late stage osteosarcoma spheroid, again, the white circle is our spheroid. We see that over the five days, the vascular cells completely engulf our late stage osteosarcoma uh, spheroids. You can really see it um, in some zoomed in version. So again, our, our, our mini tumors are here stained in the red and the blue, and you see no positive green staining for any vascular cells around them. Whereas when you look at our late stage osteosarcoma you can see that these vascular cells completely surrounded um, the late stage tumor spheroids. The next thing we wanted to see is what are these tumors giving off? So we took the conditioned media and ran a panel. And what we find is that there are certain markers that are being significantly upregulated, which have all been shown to have key roles in lung metastasis and osteosarcoma. So IL-6, IL-8, and VEGF have all been shown to have key roles in lung metastasis. And we can see that the, within our chip devices that we are getting a significant upregulation of these genes. But what effect do these cues have on the lung and, and whether or not they do prime the lung, we still didn't know. So we took our conditioned media that contained all of these 
factors. <laughs> and again, we now work with a company, Emulate Bio, which have created this um, lung chip or alveolus chip. And so how this chip works is that there's a layer of epithelial cells or lung cells, and then there's a layer, uh, there's a membrane, which is just here, and then there's your vascular cells. And so you have this nice barrier of vascular cells, membrane and epithelial cells, and you're able to blow air over it, and the chip moves to mimic breathing. And so what we took is our conditioned media and we flowed it through the vascular channel for 48 hours. And what we were really keen to understand is whether or not we were able to form the, the pre-metastatic niche or, or get this leaky vascular network to occur and, and whether or not we were getting ECM remodeling within the epithelial cells due to the induction of this, this um, conditioned media. And so... When we did this, what we found is that after 48 hours with conditioned media being floated through it, we were getting this increase in permeability from the vascular channel into the other channel, which means we were getting a formation of these kind of holes. And you can really see them here histologically that before treatment, this is a full sheet of endothelial cells. There are no holes. And then following 48 hours, you can see that you get these formations of these holes for the, or this leaky vascular network. What was also interesting is when we took the epithelial cells and, and did some gene analysis on it, we also were getting some ECN remodeling with an increase in a particular gene in the epithelial cells, which is an indicator of ECN remodeling or making the cells stickier for the cancer cells. Some of some take-home messages from this study was that we were able to develop a vascularized osteosacromonic chip device and Using this device, we were able to gain real insights into the role the vascular network plays in osteosarcoma disease progression. We were able to identify three key osteosarcoma-specific conditions cues, which have all been known to be primary mediators of lung metastases. And we were able to then develop our lung metastases on a chip device by linking these two chips and validated that the lung chip device was able to model key aspects of that pre metastatic niche. So there is some sort of cues that are coming from our osteosacoma cells that are getting the lung tissue ready for metastases. But this is still very early on in this, in this project. And so the, the ambition of this project is to develop and validate a clinically relevant biometric testing platform using patients and neurotic tumor spheroids as an osteosarcoma and drug discovery platform. And we're hoping that the platform could be incorporated into the drug development pipeline from early drug discovery to preclinical testing and help screen potential new therapies and therefore address the, the high failure rates that are seen in clinical trials, hopefully revolutionizing the way um, we treat osteosarcoma. Um, with that, I'd like to thank my lab um, in, in UCD, but also the Kelly Lab in, in Trinity College Dublin and the Artsy Lab in, in Harvard Medical School in MIT, um, as a lot of that work was done over um, through working in both of those labs. I'd also like to thank my funding sources. And if there's any budding PhD students or postdocs that are listening, um, we, are, we are going to be hiring in the new year. And so keep an eye out. Um, but with that, I'd, I'd like to take any of your questions. Oh, wow. That was fantastic. And so much information because we did, there were so many experience, you know, as part of this, because there was like the 2D models, the mouse models, the spheroids, and then testing the hydrogels and also kind of all those different <laughs> the 2D, 3D. And then, and then the audit chip is kind of um, mind blowing, honestly, and super interesting. And I kind of feel like you, you need t-shirts uh, with osteosarcoma, like on a potato, on a chip. So I guess in, in, in Dublin, a chip is like a French fry, what we would call a French fry. 
Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, yes. I, I, think that, yeah. I think we you need that for your lab. Um, yeah. Okay, so, so many questions. I think. Um, oh, we actually have a um, a question come in. Walker, do you want to take that one? Yeah. Um, the question is, uh, they want to ask is why they choose HMSC for co-culture and based on her experience, what are the most significant aspects of good osteosarcoma model to be suitable to substitute animal model? I mean, having bone matrix, osteoblasts, and so on. Why they choose BPA as a nano carrier and why they expect local delivery from nanoparticles. There's a student, so you may have to come back to me if I've missed a few if that was Walker. And so uh, the first question is, why did I choose that in a little strong cells as, as my co-culture? And the reason that I chose that is that they were kind of a precursor to osteoblasts, but also they have that immune profile, so they, they're also present within the immune cells. So they kind of had this dual therapeutic role that would happen in the bone. And that's why we use them, because they were able to both differentiate towards osteoblasts if given osteogenic cues, but also as a as a support cell as well, they they they, they work. And the second question was why did I use the those particular polymer nanoparticles? Uh the second question was what are the most significant aspects of good of a good osteosarcoma model to be suitable to substitute animal models? Um, that's a really difficult question. I don't know if I've, I've developed the best one yet, right? And I think there's so much more we can do with all of the models. And so particularly my, my co-cultures fair model, I, I was really interested in mostly the osteogenic side of things. So that's kind of why I had the stroller cell and that was the cell I was interested in. And however, we're now looking at trying to incorporate other types of cells. And, and like when we think about it, the osteosarcoma tumor microenvironment isn't any one type of cell. It's it's hundreds of types of cells. And, and that's why we want to move from my co-culture spheroid model to, to really patient-derived tumor spheroids where we're taking pieces of tissue from the patients and, and creating a spheroid that contains not only the ECM of the tumor, but also all the different cell types that are within it. Um, but I think a, a good marker is you need to work it in, in 3D. I, I think there's not enough of us that are using models in 3D for osteosarcoma. A lot of the work that's being done is they're doing all these tool therapies in 2D and then they're going 3D and wondering how it's not, it's not working out perfectly. And so, but we're, yeah, I, to be really honest, I don't think we've got there yet. And, and I think, uh, but I think there's, there's, there's room to, uh, to work with it. And the third question was the nanoparticles now, am I on the nanoparticles? Yeah, it was, why do they choose BPA as nanocare, as nanocarriers and why they expect local delivery from nanoparticles? Yeah, so uh, why those particular nanoparticles is that they have high loading efficiencies. We were able to pack in a lot of gene and, and also they were able to transfect much better than a lot of, so we compared it directly to the commercially available um, lipofectamine and we saw transfection um, efficiencies were significantly increased using those particular polymers. And why localized delivery? Um, in hindsight, I we were we wanted localized delivery so that we were getting as much of the gene to the tumor to shrink it and regenerate the bone as possible. And 
However, we're now looking at trying to deliver um, the gene alongside other things systemically because you saw in our animal model, we were able to really shrink down the tumor size, but that didn't uh, cure the animals because eventually the animals succumbed to lung metastases. So um, although we, we focus on localized because we were trying to get as much of the gene to, as possible, when you start looking at systemic delivery with nanoparticles, you have a bit more of a difficulty trying to target that particular therapy to that particular tissue and um, and you can have off-target effects because of that you can get a buildup of the lab particles in your liver and so that can cause toxic effects and however they've used these nanoparticles in other types of cancers and they've shown that you can use it to deliver other therapeutics systemically and it, it does okay so uh, future work will be looking at combining that with something systemically so that we're not only attacking the primary tumor but also the metastases um, Dr. Freeman, actually kind of have a follow-up question to some of that, because as you were talking about this, I was kind of trying to, like thinking about this as whether it was kind of more a um, uh, a local therapy versus like systemic therapy, because, I mean, and I think you had mentioned this in, in your papers where it's like the hydrogel is, is actually like um, injected right into the, the tumor site, but potentially at resection, at primary tumor resection. Um, but is there some sort of kind of, like a abscopal effect from because the, the TEGF beta is downregulated and has the, uh, the VEGF is is also um, downregulated. So there's like anti uh, angiogenesis activity. And so kind of related to that, is it a is it like a durability issue versus a resistance issue? So, you know, I think you said it delivered over 15 days. Um, and so would there be increased systemic benefit from like continual injection. So I don't know how you would do that after after the surgery is already completed. Um, and then... Yeah, so clearly, I, I don't know how we would be able to do that, but theoretically in the animal in hindsight, looking back on it, we definitely should have done more than one um, injection of the nanoparticles. And... But that will be, that's the plan is to try and look at maybe uh, uh, like a high dose and then a low dose, maybe 15 days later, and maybe we're able to like, or another high dose, it, it depends. And, but I definitely think you need to combine it with something systemically. We thought maybe if we shrunk the tumor enough, it wouldn't metastasize and we'd all be fine. But the, at least that particular animal model is a really aggressive lung metastasis model. And so... We were able to shrink the tumor fine, but that that doesn't matter because they all ended up coming to disease due to lung metastases. So we're looking at maybe combining that local delivery with something systemically, using the same delivery vehicle, but maybe delivering an immunotherapy that can be combined or or something else to try and target the metastases. And just uh, can you clarify, because I know in the, you tested it with um, dosorubicin as a systemic therapy um, though, like first line, you know, chemo for osteo, as I'm sure you know, is is MAP. And so, but I, there might be some other reasons, like maybe the mice can't tolerate, but why it wasn't tested with a MAP combo and just with Doxo. Yeah. So the reason why we just used Doxo was that MAP, the, the particular mice just didn't tolerate the MAP, and and that was that was the model. And so we were able to to get some good work with with the Doxo in, but the, the, we're hoping to maybe even. Like, and the great thing about the on-the-chip stuff is that we're going to be able to do all of these things as well and test all of these things, hopefully, in a, in a better um, model and using hospitalization and you know, seeing what happens with the tuna sizes within the chip as well. Uh, and so I know we have another question I want to get to in the Q&A, but just another follow-up to that is, 
I'm trying to understand, um, cause you know, resistance, right? Like, uh, chemo resistance is a big problem. Um, and I think TGF beta, I think also kind of maybe has been linked to, to chemo resistance, but when you're using, um, a microRNA, which is kind of changing the gene expression, is that, is can you still develop, develop resistance to that? Or is it more of a, a durability issue? I think it's more of a durability issue. I don't think you can become immune to a gene. And and what's really interesting with this particular gene is that in the healthy cells, where the particular microRNA is at normal levels, it has this pro-osteoblast anti-angiogenic effect. In cancer cells, where this particular gene has been downregulated, so we've, we've shown in our paper that this particular gene is downregulated in osteosarcoma cells, when we deliver it to those, bring it up to normal level, it seems to have this tumor suppressive or cells seem to undergo apoptosis. So it, it kind of also de- depends on the level that that gene is at, whether you're you're promoting that gene or whether you're hindering it, it can have a different effect within cells. Walker, I think we had another question come through, Q&A. Yeah. Yeah, the next question is, how would the chip compare to an acellularized lung model uh, that is used occasionally in the regenerative medicine field? In that system, tumor cells are implanted in the left intravasate into residual capillary network, then migrate to the contralateral lung. This allows study of thousands of lab-derived CTCs, which can be compared to the primary tumor. Compare, I suppose the, the one thing that we'll compare is, is that is, if you're using decederate DCN, the, the, this, the lung cells have, have no longer got their, their genetic makeup. If, if I'm, if I'm whoever asked that question, getting it is correct. And mm-hmm. so what you have is the ECN of the lung and you have all of its makeup and you're able to slow things through it, but you don't actually have the lung cells and the interaction between the lung cells. Um, whereas within the chip, although we're modeling it on a very small level, we have the key aspects that are that you need to understand. So we have the barrier that happens with the vascular channel and the, the field cells and, and how they interact. And then we have the flow and then the chip is also breathing. So it's moving up and down. And then also we have the airflow, so we have what it feels like to to breathe. So we, we're keeping all the key elements of the lung. We're just keeping it at a smaller level that we're able to really pinpoint what's happening, which I think is is key to it. Uh, yeah, that was crazy when you were describing how with the airflow to mimic the lung breathing. That was really um, amazing. And congrats so on the grant um, for doing yes. it. That is. Um, Fabulous. And we definitely are inviting you to factor next year to kind of talk. Oh, I love that. Yes. Cause I think there'll be a lot of interest on that. But, um, so I'm curious, I mean, this sounds, I mean, there's so many benefits that, you know, um, if this proves to be an, an effective model, because I imagine that it's, um, well, I I don't know, but I was, I imagine it's like a lot more cost effective so that you could develop many of these. Um, and, um, and so what is the plan for like, uh, like our, if, can others access this, this, you know, osteo on a chip um, to be able to? We're still, we're still developing. Uh, the plan will be that it should be like, we're going to work with pharmaceutical companies and try it, and try and sell it to a pharmaceutical company. That That's my plan, right? Because the thing that would be for osteosarcoma, it's such a rare disease. 
that it really hard to run clinical trials. So that if you could run hundreds of these little chips, you could theoretically run clinical trials on chips. We using patient data. So we're 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 gonna be taking tumors from patients and we're gonna be putting them in the chips. And if you could create hundreds of these chips, you could you could then test hundreds of different types of concentration in drugs and, and really figure out whether or not these drugs would work on a population. But what's really interesting, you could even take that a step further and, and figure out whether or not, you know, each patient is different. So like one drug works on one patient and doesn't work on another. So if you could then take one patient sample and, and run, you know, 10 chips and, and run different drugs in each one and figure out which one works, it has this huge capability. And I think for rare diseases like osteosarcoma, where it's really hard one of clinical trials where pharmaceutical companies aren't pushing for it, I think it's, it's going to have a huge effect. Yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, because even without the personalized piece of it, you can imagine that you could have a truly representative osteopopulation with all the different mutations and all the, you know, um, and uh, and then at least be able to kind of get a baseline, but then to actually do it for kind of the individuals uh, would be amazing because, I, you know, there isn't, there hasn't been like too much success, I think, to date with functional drug testing um, and then how complex osteo is with you know, how many mutations there are and not, not really knowing kind of which ones are the drivers. And then also just because of all the, you know, the resistance issues. So it's like, it can always find something else. It finds another path once you block a path, right? So yeah. being able to do that um, inexpensively and, and quickly um, would be amazing. Um, okay. That's the end goal anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I like, I like the vision. Um, and it's more powerful. Uh, so um, on the the um, the uh, microRNA thing, so you know, obviously you, you mentioned the COVID vaccine, so clearly it's kind of widely being applied through that. Um, and I think um, you had mentioned in, in some of your papers that it has been um, proven to have some efficacy in other cancers, like pancreatic cancer, I think maybe, or was it cervical cancer? But I'm yeah. how widely it's been applied, if at all, in oncology. Um, and you can kind of just talk about that. microRNA or or microRNA in general. Uh, yeah, just like being able the microRNA in general. Yeah, so I I think it what clinically and um, it it hasn't been used up until COVID. COVID really changed the the gene delivery kind of platform because it it got through FDA appearance so much quicker that I think there's a lot of therapeutics that are now hitting FDA approval that are not hitting as many. Roblox, so you might see more of these things being used clinically in the coming years. And but it, it was really hard to get it through any sort of FDA approval because it it's difficult, right? It is theoretically changing the genetic makeup of the cell, but it it's changing something really specific and really small, and it's not going to have these mad other targets. But it's still, you know, changing something genetically, and and so it it always comes with with Roblox trying to get um, any sort of approval for that. And 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 mighty so, but yeah, I think I think it's going to and, and that's the great thing as well about the nanoparticle carriers is that by using these nanoparticle carriers, you're not getting off target effects, right? You're not getting them in the gene going into other different cells. They're kind of hitting the right cells at the right time by using these nanoparticle carriers. Um so so what's next? I mean, clearly you're doing a lot there's Clearly, have a lot on your to-do list, and clearly a lot that you've already accomplished. And the organ chip is um, really exciting. But kind of what 
in terms of taking this um, kind of working towards clinical translation, kind of what are what are your plans next? Yeah, so we really want to look at, at increasing the, the the delivery of it. So, like I said, we we did one delivery. Uh, we saw it was used over fifteen days, and we saw a good therapeutic potential. But but we would like to see whether or not we can do a second delivery of that, and whether it would be better to have a high dose delivery of that gene at the start, and then maybe a low dose later on. That would kind of continue the the the, the therapeutic efficiency. And, and also trying to combine it. So we're really looking at trying to combine immunotherapies with the um, microRNA therapy. So you'll still deliver it locally to regenerate the bone and suppress any tumor cells that are there, but also then maybe systemically to be combining that with a chemo immunotherapy to try and hit it like as hard as we possibly can. Okay, so we're, we're going to be looking forward to that as well. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Freeman, for joining us on Osteobite. Thank you so much for having me. I, it was an absolute pleasure. And thank you, Walker, for asking such great questions. Uh, yeah, no, it was so interesting. And again, I mean, there was so much work really involved uh, in 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 kind of all the slides. you It's just amazing the amount of work that kind of <laughs> those slides represented. So thank you so much. Um, and yeah, and uh, more information on this than on Osteobite can be found on our MIB Agents YouTube channel and on our website at mibagents.org and at your favorite podcast place. And next Thursday on the 21st, we're going to be dropping a new episode of our AYA podcast, Osteo. And in this special T-Spill episode, Mia and our special guest, Sloan, who's another Junior Advisory Board member, will have a gab sesh on a bunch of different topics on their minds this month. You can find it um, at on our website, and I put a URL um, in the chat. And then the following Thursday on the 28th, we're going to be joined by Dr. Matteo Truco, a pediatric oncologist from Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Kurt Weiss, an orthopedic oncologist from the University of Pittsburgh. And they're going to be joining us to discuss their collaboration on repurposing disulfiram to overcome chemo resistance in relapse sarcomas. You can find our Osteobite slide up for the next few months on our website. And if you have any ideas for future topics you'd like to hear about, please share them with us at events.mibagents.org. Thanks again so much, Dr. Freeman, and for all of you for spending an hour with us today. Thank you, Walker. We're so glad to have you back. Hope to see more of you um, now that we're post-summer. And we hope to see you all back here on the 28th where we talk to Dr. Truco and Dr. Weiss. Thanks, everyone. Have a good rest of the week.